Right, so we have four items left from last week's agenda, which we're going to try to get through tonight. First item on the examples, personal example. We're still holding in planting. Yeah, just to remind, there's only three things you have to do in terms of your Shabbos, planting, building, and prayer. So, whenever an educational challenge comes up, what do I do if X happens? The first question you ask is, well, how do I plant that problem? How do I build that problem? And how do I pray? Right? As, as you get further into the seminar, you'll present your questions in a, sh- in a sharper way. You'll say, okay, I understand how you plant that problem, but how do you build it and pray it? Or I understand how you pray that problem, but how do you build it and plant it? Yeah, th- this is the way you have to start to think. If you think in any other way, you're not going to hop the system. Okay. So, the Gabi planting. The single most powerful method that we possess for planting guys and perspectives is personal example. Now, there are other things you could do as well, but if you're not doing this, chaval al-zman, everything else is bottle. I'll give you a makor for this first. The Gemara says that a, a child speaks in the shuk the way that his parents speak at home. Meaning that the, the parents' verbal language displays are the, the blueprint for the way the child's going to speak when he leaves the house. But by the way, Agav, uh, when I was doing the research for the book, I just ran across uh, a report in the Journal of the American Medical Association that says, Bidiuk those words, that they find that parental language displays and specifically JAMA-specified maternal language displays are the basis for the way the children speak. So... I don't know if it's just by language or in all areas, but the mother has an especially powerful hashpa on the kids. Okay, so we know that's true by language. The, there's all sorts of, of crazy studies about uh, how if a, if a, if a this is a Nor- Norwegian study, if one parent has a diet that's low fat, that the child has a five times higher chance when the child grows up of having a diet low in fat. If one parent smokes, it doubles the chances that the child will smoke. If two parents smoke, it quadruples the chance the child will smoke when the child grows up. Uh, you could argue that there's a, gen- a genetic component involved here too, but there's other studies, like there's a study done in America on wearing seatbelts, and they found that parents who wore seatbelts, the, the children were like 12 times more likely to wear seatbelts. So it's hard to argue that's a genetic component. I can see the argument, but it's rechok. So it seems like there's some sort of... Uh, of a model happening here. And indeed, that's exactly what the Gemara says. Okay, now. Let me throw out some, some parenting problems we face. You can think about how parental example could have, a, have an effect here. I recognize what I'm about to say is below the belt. Nevertheless, that's what you're coming here for. Without doubt, one of the top three challenges any parent faces, not only dealing with, with young kids, especially dealing with young kids, but also with older kids, is bedtime. How do you get your kids into bed on time? It's just a nightmare. Yeah? My wife calls it the witching hour. Yeah? You know, starting three hours before, the, the yater of the kid is already setting it up to make it impossible to get him into bed on time. So, 
There's all sorts of interesting techniques when you open up the, the secular books on chinuch. There's all sorts of interesting techniques for getting your kids into bed. <coughs> One thing that I've never seen in any chinuch book, any education book written about raising kids by secular authorities is the parents should have a bedtime. And in a Jewish book, that will be the very first step. Because if you don't plant the concept of bedtime, there's no hope that your child will relate to it normally. Yeah, there's no hope that he will have a concept there is a bedtime. So any parent who doesn't have a bedtime, forget it, your kid's not going to have a bedtime either. Now, I'm not saying the bedtime has to be the same time as the child. Of course not. Yeah? Parents have a certain bedtime based on their age. Children have a certain bedtime based on their age. And there are objective standards which determine how much, a person, how much sleep a person needs. Yeah? In To Kindle a Soul, there's a chart. And the chart goes through, starting at, at birth, you know, going straight through, you know, age 25, how much sleep your, your average person needs. So, you know, you might have a kid who needs 14 hours of sleep or 10 hours of sleep. And you can say, like, your kid, this is how much sleep you need. The data on adults is as follows. William DeMent, who's the, I think he's probably, uh, the Guttel Hador in secular sleep research. He's the man who, who discovered REM sleep, stage one, stage two, all this kind of thing. He's the head of sleep research at Stanford University. He has a book out, which is pure Musser, called uh, The Promise of Sleep. So this book is like 800 pages. You wouldn't think 800 pages on sleep would be exciting. Yeah? But it kept me up all night. So, uh, so what he points out in this book is that 99% of Americans... American adults require seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep in order to function properly. And 99% of Americans believe that they are in the 1%. Yeah? And he points out there what happens if an adult doesn't get enough sleep. The, the most pernicious result is, he says, that if you lose 90 minutes of your required sleep, so let's say you normally require seven and a half and you only get six. So he says what happens is that knocks out 30% of your alertness but doesn't affect your motor skills, which is very frightening because physically you feel fine, right? You could drive a car, you think. Yeah, your hands are not shaking, right? Your eyes are not aching. You feel fine in all ways. You're just a little bit sort of spacey. And what, the, the, what, that's how you feel. And, and the reality is 30% of what's going on in front of you, you don't see. And then he goes through all the statistics of what happens when people don't sleep enough and then they, they drive a car. Okay, that's what he does. Okay. If you're a parent and you're, you have to pick up every little detail of what's going on with your kids to give you half a chance of planting and building properly and knowing what to pray for, and you're not seeing 30% of what's happening in front of you, you're finished. Yeah, you stack the odds against yourself, there's no chance. So you can figure out, let's say that you're, in the, you're, you're part of the 99%. You need seven and a half to eight and a half hours sleep. Yeah? Let's, let's be makele. Let's say it's seven and a half. So you figure out what time do I have to get up in the morning? How long does it take me to get into bed? Exactly like you would do with your kids. Then you back it up. You said, this is my bedtime. Now, how close to your kids' bedtime would you like them in bed? Then go, make sure you get into bed at the same time. You want, you want your kids put in bed on time? That's what time you have to be in bed. By the way, uh, only because I became aware of this planting you sowed, I made a bedtime for myself. And... At the time, I thought it was just spooky hishtadlis because I didn't think my kids would notice at all. And then, every now and then, when I would miss my bedtime, yeah, if a kid would see it, he would rebuke me. And he would say, Abi, you missed your bedtime. What are you doing up so late? Now, why? Our kids grew up in a home where bedtime was normal. 
And they just assume that everyone has a bedtime because mom has a bedtime, dad has a bedtime, and so everyone, of course everyone has a bedtime. If you grow up at home and mom and dad don't have a bedtime, so then bedtime is an obstacle that mom and dad throw in front of you when they want to have fun and you're in the way. But if they know that you have a bedtime also, it's like eating, sleeping, and showering. It's just a given. So, ironically, it requires us being mechanach ourselves first. But in this Nikudah, you see, if you want your kids to have a bedtime, you've got to have a bedtime. I'll give you another example. When I was, when I was doing the research for the book, I, I toured, what, three countries uh, and very, very seriously interviewed uh, expert mechanchim. On a tour, I, I also spoke with a lot of parents. When I was discussing this issue of personal example and planting, with one parent, she understood the concept very well, very, very bright woman. She told me the following story. She, she drives the kids to school every morning. The lady lives in America. She drives the kids to school every morning. She, and she picks the kids home up from school in the afternoon. One afternoon, she picked the kids up from school and she had to pick some things up at the market on the way home. So she stopped at the market and she bought some things and she had a coupon for one of the, the items in the market. So she paid, trying to use the coupon, and the, it was one of these coupons that's issued by a national franchise, and the lady who was at the, at the, at the uh, coupon had never seen the coupon before, so she couldn't, she couldn't honor it. So she sent this woman to the manager. So the lady went to the manager with her coupon, and the manager also didn't know what the coupon was, and they were going back and forth and back and forth, and after a while, the manager just threw his hands up in the air, reached into the drawer, pulled up some cash, handed her $2.00, and said, like, here's your credit lady, and sent her away. Okay, so she took the money, she put it in her pocket, and she left. As she was driving the kids home, she realized, wait a minute, I shouldn't be getting $2, I should be getting a dollar. So she had been overpaid a dollar. She got home, but she's not going to go back for a dollar. She, she, at least not right away. She, she got all the kids into bed finally. Late at night, she climbs into bed to go to sleep herself. She told me she could not sleep. She was tossing and turning, right? An hour goes by, and she's thinking about the dollar in her purse that doesn't belong to her. And, like, she, how can she sleep when she has somebody else's money in her purse? Two hours goes by, three hours goes by. It ends up she doesn't sleep that night because of a dollar in her purse. Oh, she's a good lady. Dollar in her purse, she could not sleep. Mom, she did not fall asleep, right? So she wakes up very, very early in the morning, gets all the kids' breakfast ready, right? Gets all their clothes ready, gets the kids up a little bit early, gets them all dressed, you know, pops into the car and drives off to the market on the way to school. So in L.A., you don't leave your kids in the car, yeah, because the car will disappear with the children. So she took the kids into the market with her and she goes back up to the manager and she starts fighting with the manager, explaining, you know, listen, yesterday I asked for this thing. He said, leave me alone. You gave me too much money. I want to give you money back. So the manager didn't want to take it back. I give you the right amount. And they're fighting, fighting, fighting. Finally, he takes the dollar back. This is all in front of the kids. Fine. So then she leaves, she gets the kids in the car, and she drives them off school, and she drops them off. So, end of story. Six months goes by. Her oldest child, who was like 12 years old, 13 years old, uh, takes an exam in school. And it ended up being an extremely difficult exam. And the teacher gave it back the next day, and she was furious. And the teacher said, you were not listening, 
and no one studied, and you're going to get smashed for this, right? And, and she said, every single child in the class failed it, except for one. And then she starts praising the one boy who didn't fail the exam. The one boy who didn't fail the exam, he happened to have gotten an A+. Plus. Yeah? And he got every single question right. She's saying in front of the whole class, he got every single question right. And I, I want you to know who this boy is, she says. And she names this lady's son. Yeah? So he was so proud. Like, he couldn't believe he had pulled it off. So because everyone had done so poorly on the exam, she handed back out all the exams, and she graded the exams out loud with the kids, going through the answers. As she's going through the answers, she says of one of the answers, and the kid who was just praised in front of 30 of his friends for getting an A+, realizes she made a mistake grading his exam. He didn't get an A+, either. He blew one of the questions, yeah, which was brought his, his it weren't a lot of questions, it brought his grade way down. And she's praised in front of the whole class, and now he's going to... So as she's going through the rest of the test questions, the boy, right doesn't know what to do. He's going back and forth. And then suddenly, in the middle of class, he raises his hand, and the teacher says, yeah, what do you want? And he says, I got an answer wrong. She says, what do you mean? And he brings the paper up, and she sees he talked about an answer wrong. Yeah? So that day, the boy comes home, and he tells his mother the story. And the mother, like a normal mother, said, how did you do that? How did you possibly admit to the teacher that you got a question wrong? You're like, you know, like, why don't you just keep your mouth shut? Why, like, how did, how? So the boy says, I'll tell you the truth. There was a battle raging inside of me. And I felt so guilty. Right? I wanted to go up and tell her. And I wanted the A-plus so bad. And I was so embarrassed that I wasn't going to get the A-plus after she had praised me for it. And I was going back and forth and back and forth. And he says, and then I remembered a long time ago, Mommy, we were in a market. And you gave some money back to the teller. And he says, at that moment, the battle was over. And I got up and I gave the money back. Yeah? Okay. That was expert planting. And she had no idea what she was doing. But that was expert planting. I asked educators all across America, England, South Africa, I asked them, what is the greatest educational challenge you face? So I got all sorts of different answers. One person in America, who I consider to be one of the gudole achinuch in America, he said to me, without missing a beat, I said, what's the greatest educational, ch educational challenge you face? He responded instantly. He said, I'll tell you what it is. He says, he, he runs a high school. He says, parents spend thousands and thousands of dollars to send their kids to our private yeshiva high school. And there, along with Kant and calculus, they expect that we're going to teach the kids some semblance of ethics. And then on Sunday... The kid, the parents, take their kids to an amusement park. And in order to save $5 on the admission price, they lie about the child's age. In order to save 5 bucks, they blow a $15,000 education. That is the greatest educational challenge I face. So I, when I was traveling in America, I told the, the parents, right, I, I spoke, what, uh, 10 cities in America. Every city I stopped and I said... Please, if your children are you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, old enough to understand, when you fill out your income tax forms, do it with them. Sit down in front of them and fill it out. And say, you see this, right? This, right, it could have been a business expense. It could have looked like that to the government, but it's not really, so I'm not going to claim it, right? And this income, it was cash, yeah, but I'm, I'm claiming it anyways, right? 
go ahead and tell them exactly what you're doing. Parents were sweating as I was giving this recommendation, yes? Yes? Right? Why am I saying this? Because what do you want your child to be? How many people daven for their kid to be a yasher? Me. Now, what is the chance that my kid's going to be a yasher if I'm not a yasher? Zero. Because I'm planting krumkite. So if I plant krumkite, then that's who my kid's going to be. So it's a low shayach that I'm going to get the right product. Whatever you want, you've got to plant. Whatever you plant, that's what you're going to get. So whatever behavior you want to bring out in your children, you have to plant that in yourself first. Yeah? Right? You plant it yourself, then you are the seed that plants it in the child. Okay, in this regard, one more point, which I'm just going to mention now, but I'm not going to go into detail. I don't want to take questions on it tonight because I recognize I'm opening a can of worms, but I want to mention it now so I can go back and deal with it next week. Next week, we're going to deal with the issue everyone wants to hear about, right? which is punishment. So I'm going to get there next week. But I just want to, I just want to raise one issue now. None of us would be happy if when a friend or a sibling misbehaves, our child walked over and whacked them. Yeah, that, that would make us all come. We would say, don't hit, right? Come to, come to Abba, come to Imantelis, or, or here's another strategy. We would have all sorts of ideas. So if, right, when our child misbehaves, we whack the kid or scream at them, then we are planting that behavior in our children. So you just have to be aware, what, however you want your child to react when someone misbehaves, you have to do that. Yeah? Okay, now I'll come back to misbehavior issues and punishment next week. Next week is going to be the, 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 the hot week. Okay. Enough for number one. Number two. Try to keep moving through. Consistency. Ichvius. We don't like to make a lot of demands on our children. If you don't have to make a demand on your child, forget it. If there's any way to avoid making a demand, forget it. However... If you and your wife together decide this is something the child has got to do, so then make the demand, but then you cannot back off. You make a demand, you have to follow all the way through and make sure the demand is fulfilled. One of the Gedoliador, the way that he explains the concept, he says in very interesting language, he says you have, to, you have to be persistent until the child is shomea. Now, he doesn't say until the child is obedient. Because if he said until the child is obedient, that would be mashma. You just apply sufficient force so that the kid eventually crumbles and gives in. But that's not the goal here. The goal is that you actually bring the child to accept the demand that you're placing upon the child. So, for instance, let's say that you say, today's bath day. Yeah, we're we're, going to take a bath now. If the child throws the full-on tantrum and you give in, so you just completely undermine the chinuch in the house. Yeah, it can't, we'll talk about how to deal with tantrums next week but you cannot give in you, once you say we're going to take a bath that is it and you go all the way until the child takes the bath whatever that takes we'll talk about how to do it but whatever it takes yeah, you want your child to do homework so if you say 10 minutes of homework it's 10 minutes of homework if you say until you finish your homework then it's until you finish your homework if the child succeeds in getting you to back off you are finished yeah, you will never have any koach in the house again Therefore, you must be consistent in your demands. Whatever you demand, you go for. If you realize you're going to have to do this, you will not make too many demands because you don't want the, fe- you want the-, you don't want the battle. So, you- so pick your battles carefully. 
But whatever you make a, a, a demand, make sure you're, you're ready to back it up all the way. Yeah, and of course, this goes without saying, this is like totally below the level of our course. There has to be complete consistency between mom and dad. I mean, this, I don't have to tell you this. If there's a parent who's soft, again, there's no chinuch in the house, you're finished. It can't be that one says no and one says yes. Mom and dad have to talk, they have to decide what their demands are, and then go weiter. Now, relevant to this, there's an important tangential point. Again, I, I hate to keep throwing in these tangents, but because we have so little time together, I'm trying to cram as many hints of chinuch as possible. If you were in charge of a daycare center, and this was no ordinary daycare center, you charged 10,000 bucks a year for the care you were giving at this daycare center, and the only reason people were willing to pay it was there was no daycare center that could possibly provide finer care than you're providing. Would you ever have staff meetings? How often would you have a staff meeting? 10,000 bucks a kid you're charging. Of course, minimally daily. Yeah? Perhaps your mom Valila. Who knows? So, in, in a normal Jewish home, we provide better care than daycare. Daycare is considered lower than what mom and dad provide. And therefore, minimally, there have to be staff meetings. Yeah? My wife and I have a daily meeting where we discuss each patient. Yeah? And... Those meetings are more brief. Yeah, there's probably a total of maybe 20 minutes of discussion that goes on every day about the kids. Once a month, we have a major strategy meeting about like the whole ship, how to make sure the whole ship is on track. Uh, and that meeting minimally goes on for an hour. Yeah? Uh, but, but it's a major planning meeting about how to run the daycare center. And, and if you listen to the meeting, you would think you were sitting listening to two people discussing a daycare center. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, with all of the planning, all of the, the strategies, let me fill you in on some problems that I saw, which I'm not you know, fully competent to handle. Maybe you have some ideas how to handle them. If not, we'll put them on a list. We can cover them next month. Right? It's, it's a professional meeting where we, are, we decide how to be mechanic the kids. Now, if this sounds strange, just keep chazering over the call of home air. Where, is, where do you expect better care, in the home or in the daycare center? Avada in the home. So this was minimal quality for a top daycare center. So Avada, you would do this in your home. Okay. That's consistency. Number three, explanation. One of the fundamentals of planting is making explicit values and perspectives. In a way, the kid can be toe-face. Here, there's two areas that perhaps we do not pay enough attention to. One area is mitzvahs, and another area is emunah. First, just a word about mitzvahs. It is totally normal for a child to say, Abba, why do we do this mitzvah? Right? Ima, wh- wh- like, what is that mitzvah all about? Uh, again, I assume it's below the level of our course for me to have to say that a child does not deserve rebuke for that. Yeah, that's a very healthy sign the child wants to know. The child's trying to learn. Now, when the child asks, why do we do a mitzvah? The child, even if the child doesn't realize that the child is asking two separate questions, you have to divide out the questions and explicitly respond to both of them. The first question is, Abba, Ima, why do we do the mitzvah? And the answer to that question is, because it makes Hashem happy. 
Hashem asked us to do this mitzvah. It makes him happy. That's why we do the mitzvah. Yeah, that's how you're machanach kids in lishma. Even though they're not ready for lishma yet, but you're planting the seeds of lishma. Yeah, lishma means I'm doing it because Hashem asked. Period. There's no other reason. Okay, but there's a second question which is hiding, which is, well, why did Hashem ask? Why does Hashem like that mitzvah? Or another way of saying that is tamei mitzvahs. And we should have some reasonable tam that we can say over to a child, appropriate for their ramah. Yeah? By the way, we have Masorah for this. Yeah? This is the Sefer Chinuch. Why does he do that? We're not capable of understanding any mitzvahs. Come on. At the Arisa, we're going to have some tefisa in. We don't have any tefisa in the Arisas. Every day Arisa is totally beyond human comprehension. So why did Arishon then put down Tamei mitzvahs? Because human beings need Tamei mitzvahs. Yeah, it gives us cheshek, it helps us. It gives us something to hold on to when we're here in, in the darkness of Olam Hazah. So, when a child says, why do we do a mitzvah? You have to have ready. One, we do it because it makes Hashem happy. Really happy. You can't imagine how happy it makes him. Right? And number two, the reason we do it, right, is because X. And then you say over Tom that's Lafia's Madrega. I'll never forget davening Yom Kippur one year. And there was a Rav who was davening in Armenian. And the Rav had his son davening with us. And the son looked to me like he was about 15 years old. And the boy, throughout the Yom Kippur davening, was, you could see, he was tearing through, he was pouring over the Dastunas. And every free minute, Right? Anytime there was a break in davening, he walked with his father and he was fighting with his father over points in Das Tunis. Yeah? So, dad was doing a good job in Hasbara. You could see. Because his kid was coming to him and asking him why. Yeah? Okay, now for a 15-year-old, Das Tunis is Lefita Ramah, right? Ulai, if you have a bright 15-year-old. Yeah? For a 10-year-old, you can't, get, you can't sit down with Das Tunis. But there are things that we can give over, and those things we have to make sure to give over, and unfortunately Hasbara is something we don't do enough of. And the results we see when the kids become 12, 13, 14, 15, if we haven't done enough Hasbara in Tamei Mitzvahs, you can smell it. Okay. Emunah. It goes without saying that if a child asks an Emunah-related Shiloh, they have to get a Gavaldic answer. If you don't know a Gavaldic answer, then you have to tell the child, you know, that is a bomb kasha. I'm going to go to my Rav and I'm going to ask. Yeah? It's, it's, it's a tremendous question. And if you know the answer, then take as much time as it takes to say it over properly. And if you don't have the time, because in three minutes you're going to do something else, say to the child, at three o'clock on Tuesday, I'll explain it to you. But don't let Shaz and Amuna fester. Because, unfortunately, we're in the middle of an epidemic. And a Shaila and Amuna is like having an open cut in an AIDS ward. Yeah, it's, ext- it's an extremely dangerous thing, Bismanazeh. And if, if the, every one of these cuts is not healed, the kid is mamish and sakana. Okay, if you have never been uh, ma'ayin into the basic Shailas in, in Yana Amuna, then you've got to go through this, the, the Sugis. Be, be, be I mean, you have no choice. If you've never read the Kuzari, yeah, crucial. Uh, if you've never read uh, the Chovot Alvavot, if you've never read the Das Tunos, yeah, 
the Derech Hashem basically has all the stuff that's in the Das Tvunas, so I don't think you need to go through the Derech Hashem too, although if you like Derech Hashem, it's much more Pashut, although it's less, I think it's less deep than the Das Tvunas. You'll have much more of a Tfis in the big picture in the Das Tvunas, yeah? But you have to have all questions of Amuna clear. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do you know the Torah Shabal Pez is still intact? Um, how, how come how come there's one letter difference between one Sefer Torah and another Sefer Torah? Can I make an Aliyah and a Sephardi Sefer Torah where Psudak is spelled differently? You have to have answers to these questions. Yeah? Okay. Your five-year-old is not going to ask you about Psudaka. Yeah? But a 12-year-old might. And if you know the answer to Psudaka, then you can be mazbir things better to a five-year-old. Yeah? So you have to get clear all the Amuna issues. And if a child asks, you must be mazbir. At the lowest madriga, when you're dealing with young children... It's important to proactively plant emuna by doing things like stop in front of a flower and show the kid the structure of a flower. If you've never looked at the structure of a flower, do it first. But a flower is an astounding thing. Yeah? Or an ant. Yeah? You have an ant? Get yourself a magnifying glass or a microscope. Yeah? And take a look at the ant and you will just not believe the structure. Yeah? Many of you might have background, secular background. You know biology, you know organic, organic chemistry. It's astounding, yeah? So from the very early stages of the kid's lifetime, you start pointing out that he flies a bore. The kid should, everywhere he looks, see commercials for Kodesh Baruch Hu, yeah? The Mesil Shaim writes that the things that are most important for us to know, right, the things that are, mo- that, that are most key, because they're for some, so we're mita lame from them. So Emun is one of those things. The whole olam, from one end to the other, repolopo is male amuna. And because it's all around us, we don't notice it. And because we don't notice it, we can't teach it to our kids. And one day the kid wakes up and says, how do you know there's a God? I'll tell you, when when I I, I deal with with adults in 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 their 20s and 30s, most of the day, when when a 25, 35-year-old adult looks me in the face and says, what makes you think there's a God? I'm usually left dumbfounded. I didn't know where to begin. My, my response is like, what planet are you from? Are you, like, like, take a look at your nose. I mean, like, what's wrong with you, yeah? I don't usually say it in that tone, yeah? But, but, but that, that, this is the place that you have to get your kid to. Your kid should see commercials for a Kodesh Baruch Hu all over the place and it's totally beseder and fully from to talk about a Kodesh Baruch Hu. You don't have to be embarrassed that it's like sort of a, like a Balchuva thing to do. Yeah, no, don't think that way. Yeah, it's the first mitzvah according to the Rambam, according to many, many of the Monami mitzvahs. So it's Kedai to talk about a Kodesh Baruch Hu and show that a Kodesh Baruch Hu is running the world, right? With the Hashkacha in front of us. Fine. So Hasbara, especially by mitzvahs and by Amuna. Okay, love and attachment. Every object, every creature in this world has a purpose. The, the sun has a purpose, the stars have a purpose. Each one of them is here for a tafkid. My wife informed me a few years ago that the purpose of ants is to help us clean chametz for Pesach. Yes? Everything has a purpose. What is the purpose of a human being? So, on the Pasuk, I have placed before you life and death. 
So the Ibn Ezra there says, I have placed before you life so that you can love. That is, he says, life is for love. Life is for chaim heim la'ava. That's the words of the Ibn Ezra. Now he's not talking about the chaim of a dog or an ant. He's talking about human beings. A hammer is meant to hammer nails. A saw is meant to saw wood. You take a hammer and you bang nails with it. If a hammer could speak, every time you take that hammer and you bang, you go, wham! The hammer go, oh! Bam! Oh! Why? It feels good. That's what a hammer's supposed to do. You take a hammer and you try to saw, saw wood with it. You're pushing the hammer back and forth across the wood. With each stroke, the hammer cries. Because it's not what a hammer is meant to do. And eventually, you're going to knock the head off the hammer. Because if you use something for something other than it was meant to be used for, it will break. The purpose of a human being is to love. If human beings don't love, they break. That is the nature of a human being. And the training for doing what we're going to do forever is called chinuch. So therefore, the fundamental principle in chinuch is that we have to love our kids. We have to pour incredible amounts of ava over them. So one godel here in Yerushalayim said, ava perusho chom. The definition of ava is warmth. In discussions with him, we were able to break down ava into two components. Ava consists of attention and affection. And they're very different and they have very different effects on a human being. Attention is attending to a child's need when they have the need. So, for instance, if a child is hungry, it is attendant behavior to feed them. If the child is tired, it's attendant behavior to put them to bed. If the child falls and scrapes a knee, it's attendant behavior to give the child a hug. When the child needs mom or needs dad to be there for the child, that's called being attendant. When parents are not available to their children for long spans of time, that is not called being attendant. And even if you have somebody stand in and be attendant for you, so if the child needs you at that time, so there could be damage caused. The, the yardstick by which we measure how well attended to a child is is called in the language of the modern psychologist, attachment. Now, you don't have to use the psychological term. You can see it with your own eyes. It's plus. You don't need a PhD to see this. A child who has received enough attention, because they've internalized that mom and dad are there, they feel secure. And because they're secure, they're not clingy. They go off. They do their own thing. Yeah, they're confident. Yeah, they're not afraid. When we're attendant to children, it makes them courageous and independent. Children who do not get enough attention... They tend to be clingy. They tend to cry a lot. They hold on to their parents at all costs. Uh, they go into a panic when parents are not present. They will not sleep properly. Uh, these are the kind of kids who they'll get six hours of sleep a night even though they need 14. And they'll wake up at 4.30 in the morning and jump in their parents' bed because during the day they didn't get filled up with enough attention and they're starving for it. Yeah, So they, they just they won't sleep because... Love is much more of a need for them than the physical sleep. Yeah? There's all sorts of behaviors that are manifest when kids don't get enough attention. 
the, the, the most famous experiment in non-attentive care in, in modern history what took place between in a, it took place in a big way in Israel between the 1930s and 1998, and that was the famous kibbutz experiment. Yeah, the socialists, the secular socialists who set up the kibbutzim, they wanted to produce the the socialist Superman, and the idea was if you coddle a kid, you're going to make him soft. You get one of these, you know, these the, these uh, these ghetto kids from Eastern Europe, yeah, with the pudgy with the pudgy cheeks, which we don't want. We want a kid who's tough, who can fight it out, yeah? So the idea was, bring him up tough. So they, the, the parents slept at home, and the kids, starting at birth, were handed over to these children's homes. And the children's homes, they were cared for by a metapellet, who, you know, was a ratio of like 1 to 30. They did this on purpose. So that, the kids would have to cry a little bit before the metapellet would get to them. It would toughen them up a little, give them a thick skin, Yeah? In the early months, the mother would come in and nurse, and as soon as possible, they wean them to a bottle. And the kids grew up in the children's homes. They saw their parents once, twice a day at meals. But besides that, the kids were raised as independent kids. Okay. The result was that these kids ended up with, uh, by, 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 by the 1990s, more than 50% of the children on Kibbutzim were suffering from Axis I disorders, alcoholism, drug abuse, depression, major depression, uh, uh, nervous disorders, you name it. Yeah, more than 50% of the kids on these kibbutzim were diagnosed. And in 1998, they closed the last of the 260 children's homes in Israel because the people on the kibbutzim themselves realized the experiment was a horrible fashla, pardon the term. Yeah, it was just a complete disaster and it destroyed three generations of kids. So we don't do that. Now, by the way, Agav, there is a guy in America, unfortunately, I think he's Jewish, who uh, is is creating a whole new wave of, of, of the kibbutz experiment. Yeah? But this time it's being done voluntarily by individuals in a capitalistic society. Yeah? The guy's name is Ferber, and he has an ingenious method. The idea is, you know, kids, you know, they keep you up all night, and they don't know how to sleep properly. So he has this book, which is called Solve Your Child's Sleep Problems. Now, I don't know whose problems it solves, but it's definitely not the child's problem that it solves. Yeah? Right? But it's extremely effective for the parents. And what he's proven is, on average, within three days, you can get any kid to sleep through the night. And it works. And the data is excellent. The data from Ferber and from other people who've done the research also shows Ferber's method works. And if you leave a kid screaming in his room, then sometimes the kid will crack in one night. Sometimes it takes as much as a week. I've heard of cases, I've never seen a document, but I've heard of cases where it took 10 days before the kid cracked. But within one to 10 days, every child will crack, they will stop crying. And then you solve your sleep, I mean, your child's sleep problem. <laughs> now, of course, you know how it works. The way that it works is the child goes into a state of yeush because he knows that nobody's going to come and take care of him. And because he knows that no one's going to come and take care of him, so he just stops crying. What Ferber did not put in the book, and this was completely dishonest of him, and he had access to the studies because he was at Harvard, and the studies that I saw were from Harvard. After, it was, it was before he wrote his book. So I know that he saw the studies. The studies show that the kids who are ferberized, so they sleep less soundly, they walk around with more daytime uh, tiredness, daytime sleepiness, and they're, they're less secure. They're less securely attached. They're, 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 they get very clingy. Now, why is this? Because they're not sleeping at night, they're just not crying. The reason they're not crying is because who's going to come? And it was at, at a deep subconscious level that went into the child when they were young that if I scream, no one's going to be here. Now, I will not describe the language 
that some of our Gdoli Torah have used for people who let their kids scream at night. Right? It's probably not appropriate for me to say in a shul. But believe it to me, our, our, the, the Gdoli Israel of our door have used extremely strong language about letting kids scream through the night. Yeah, We do not do this. Right? We have to be attentive to children if we want healthy, normal children. I believe that, that part of what we've seen in the last 10 years in, in the political leaders in Israel are, are the result of people who were raised on kibbutzim running the country. <laughs> okay. Now, that's attention. By the way, there is a way to get your kids to sleep at night yeah, without ferberizing your children. And it's a very simple method, right? I, it's outlined in Tekindle Soul. It's a five-step method. It's very simple. It's called Todah. T-O-D-A-H. Yeah? And if you just follow the Todah system, your kids will, they will get to sleep as early as it is possible to get to sleep to go to, to the kid to go to sleep, meaning as early in their development as possible. So when they're young, the, the kids don't sleep a lot. You know, newborns sleep every 20 minutes for, you know, for, for 20 minutes. But this will get them on track as soon as possible and it does no damage. How does Todah work? There are five types of cries. T-O-D-A-H. All you have to do is identify what kind of cry it is and then you'll know exactly how to, how to respond to the child. Here's how it works. T. <clears throat> Tantrums. Tantrums are emotional extortion. The child is telling you, I'm going to cause you immense pain until you give me what I want. Okay, now, we're going to deal with tantrums in detail next week, but just as a preview of coming attractions, we never, all caps underlined, never respond to tantrums. If a child is throwing a tantrum then you just ignore the child. You explain to the child, I never give him to tantrums, and you walk away. And that's it, the tantrum's over. If you do this every single time the child does it from birth, the child will not throw tantrums by the time the kid is five, six, seven, eight years old because they know it doesn't work. It's never worked in their life. Yeah? One-year-olds cannot throw a tantrum at bedtime. You cannot be witnessing a tantrum when you're dealing with a one-year-old. Ulai at two, they could start. Yeah? And... If you spend enough time with your kids, you'll know what a tantrum sounds like. A tantrum is the child is not really scared, the child is not hungry, the child is not wet. The kid is just mad. And he's making himself scream. And you'll hear like, he'll go, right? And you can see it's very, very contrived. They don't know not to be contrived. So it's obvious what's happening. And a tantrum you can just not relate to. Forget about it. You don't have to go and take care of your kid if your kid is throwing a tantrum. Oh, Right? O is occasional nighttime whimpers. All children in occasional nighttime whimpers. All children at night cry. They're in the middle of a dream and they roll over and they go. Okay, that's nothing. Forget it. Yeah? Don't bother getting up out of bed for an occasional nighttime whimper. Nothing happened. Yeah? It's just a child in the middle of a dream or whatever. You don't have to run up and I had I had one student, every night when her child would whimper, she would jump up. And, and, and pick up the child because she was afraid of doing damage because of attachment, yeah? So she did damage because, you know, the kid never got any sleep and the kid was an absolute maniac, yeah? So occasional nighttime whimpers, let it go, forget about it, yeah? T, tantrums. Oh, occasional nighttime whimpers. D, distress. If a child is hysterical, you have to go and pick the child up. Yeah, you walk over to the crib, the bed, whatever it is, you pick the child up and you hold them and you hold them until they're not hysterical anymore. What is hysterical? It's over-the-top screaming. Yeah, the kid is, mama, she's lost it. He's, he, he, he's, he, he's not emotionally there anymore. If a child is hysterical, and by the way, if you want to see a child hysterical, just ferberize a child. Yeah, right? You'll definitely see a hysterical child then. 
when a kid hits D, you have to pick the child up and hold them. Yeah, even if it gets in the way of the sleep, what I recommend is that the family decide who's going to get up at night or alternate, but only one parent should blow their sleep per night because at least there'll be someone in the house who's sane. Yeah? Okay. So D is distress. Tantrums, occasional nighttime whimpers, D is distress. A is afraid. Yeah? If the child is afraid, so don't pick the kid up. The, the, the child is not hysterical. He's just afraid. Walk over to the bed and pat the child back to sleep again. Rub the back, right? You know, pat them. Keep them lying down. Yeah, because they, they're not so emotionally stirred up that they need the comfort of, of a hug. They just need someone to be there with them. Yeah? There are times in a child's life where mom or dad has to sleep in their room. That happens. Yeah? Because sometimes kids go through scoofers where they're afraid. So you might have to sleep in the room for a while, yeah? I don't recommend, except in extraordinary cases, you have to ask a child before you do it, I don't recommend bringing the kids into your bed. Yeah? There's, there's physical problems and there's emotional problems. The physical problem is you'll, most pediatricians won't give you permission to do it because officially it's dangerous. Yeah? And even though it's a very rare thing that uh, a parent rolls over on a child during the night, but unfortunately there are cases where it happened and therefore I think most pediatricians do not feel comfortable giving you permission to take uh, at least a small child into your bed. A big child you, where you can't suffocate them, okay, that's not a, that's not, there's no physical danger there. Then the only issue is the emotional issue. But with small children, infants, if you take them into your bed, a pediatrician could say it's it's up. Now, I have heard Gedolei Torah, in rare cases, give a horat shah that you have to take the kid into your bed. But it's a very rare case, and it's better to go in and sleep in the kid's room and take care of the kid over there. Yeah, get them used to sleeping in their room. If they have their room, if they don't have their room, the bed in your room, but whatever the case is. Okay. The emotional damage is that having a kid in your bed can cause shalom bias problems. And another person who I consider to be a godal in this, in this door made the statement publicly, I think I can say who he is because he's made the statement publicly many times, Rav Noah Orlowick made the statement publicly that uh, there's two things you need to do to have a great kid. Yeah? Shalom bias and tefillah. So Bringing the kid into your bed, if it causes shalom bias problems, could be very problematic. And unless you have a great marriage, you might not realize that it's causing shalom bias problems until they're already there. So therefore, lechatchila, I would say, don't bring the kids into your bed because your spouse might not tell you that it's causing a problem until there's already damage that's done. So therefore, if you can avoid bringing the kid into your bed, that's better. If your spouse really wants the kid in the bed... And you don't mind. You know, let's say uh, your, your wife just came home from the hospital and she's nursing and she's too tired to get up at night. She can't get up to get the kid. And it's, you know, she's mommish exhausted. And you don't mind. And you can somehow deal with the physical problems to make sure there's no physical damage. And you plan on doing it short term. So I can imagine a Rob giving you permission to bring the kid into your bed for that, for that purpose. Yeah, that's, that's a reasonable thing. Yeah. So if you don't realize it, you don't realize it. If you realize it, then you get, pick them up and you, you know, get them a cup of water or take them to the bathroom or walk them back to, the, to their bed and tuck them in and put them back to sleep again. Yeah. Because if you don't realize it, it's repeated. So then, so, okay, so you don't realize it, Ashrecha. <laughs> Pardon? No, kids love sleeping in their parents' bed. It's not, not damaging at all. No, this is important though. There is no such thing as overattachment. You cannot attend. You cannot overattend to a child. Now, be careful. Uh, you, let me. Let me. Let, 
Attention. Let me let me explain though. When I say attention, I mean if a child has a legitimate need, you can, you have to take care of the need. You can provide children with things that are not legitimate needs, but that's not overattending. That's just spoiling the kid. Yeah. But if a kid wants to crawl into your bed at night, you're not going to do any damage to them whatsoever. Yeah. They'll just end up more and more secure. The only problem is that you could do physical damage to them, or God forbid, you could do emotional damage to the marriage. Okay. And look, if, if, if you can take... You, I, this is not a hook. I'm telling you the swars behind it. So now that you know the swars, you can pass on the Shiloh. Yeah? If you know that there's no danger of physical problems and there's no emotional problem going on... Say it again more. Yeah. It's not a good idea. Yeah. Family beds usually end up in divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. Hold on. Okay, I guess we are. Yeah, we're open for questions. I'm not going to get for anymore. All right, go ahead. Shoot. Yeah. So like this, if you haven't ever seen this before, you have to prepare yourself. Uh, tantrums, in 5% of the cases, end with the child passing out. And if you haven't seen it, it's a little scary. Because the kid screams, 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 and then just goes, yeah? And then the child turns blue for a moment, and then they start breathing again, Yeah? Okay, now, if you've never seen this, you're going to be on the phone to the Hovesh, yeah? But, you know, after you've been through it five or ten times, like, yeah, wait till he gets up, he'll be fine, yeah? No big deal. If a kid throws a tantrum, you cannot give in. Under any circumstances, you do not give in. If the child is overtired, or hungry, or sick, then you attend to whatever the child's need is. If they're overtired, you put them to bed. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're sick, you give them, a, you know, some... Act them all and put them to bed. But you cannot ever, ever, ever give into tantrums because if you give into one tantrum, you buy yourself 30 more. Minimal. Yeah? Uh, again, I'll deal with tantrums next week in, in great detail, but there's no exception to this rule. Yeah? Also, is there such thing as overdoing explaining that the flower is beautiful and it's made by Hashem? Is that, can you overdo that, let's say, every single time? Or Yeah, like this. Every explanation has to be exciting. As soon as the child's bored, you lost. So therefore, if you can't overdo exciting explanations. Yeah, I'm mean, like you know, Halavai, right? Your kid will have you know, you know, seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of exciting examples of a course broken in our world, you know, and will love hearing them from you. But if you bore your child, so then talk could have the reverse effect. Yeah, and they could just become immune to niflasabori. Yeah. I, I didn't finish. Well, I don't know what to do. I got two more minutes. I guess, should I finish? Because you, you want to do it tonight. Okay, fine. Okay. Fine. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just finish off quickly. I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't leave enough time again. We need ten more sessions. Okay. Okay, like this. Um, okay. So we did tantrums, occasional nighttime whimpers, distress, afraid. The last one is H. If the child is hungry or wet, then the child needs to be fed, right, nursed back to sleep, or uh, change and then nurse back to sleep. Yeah? And, you know, mom's got to get up. No one else can do the nursing. Mom's got to get up and she's got to take care of the kid and then put the kid back again. Yeah? And we, we assume that you're nursing and I'll, when I, next week when I deal with affection in more detail, I'll speak explicitly about, uh, about nursing and why that's much better than bottle feeding if you can do it. Yeah? Does, does all planting need to be revealed? Because I've said that again for bedtime. 
it works. So it might be doing super 7, and 12 I should be 10, 10, 30. Where did that come in? And in the general picture also, so does it work mystically that it happens in the house and it also affects Okay, the it works spooky. Yeah, it, it works in Ruchnius. But even without that, my kids know at 6 o'clock at night when I'm arranging my schedule that I've got to be in bed by this time. Right? And if bedtime is a part of your life, it will affect you during your daylight hours and your kids will be aware of that. They'll hear when you make plans to go out with friends. What time do you tell you the babysitter you're going to be home? Yeah, like all this kind of, there's lots of cues. Your kids know everything. There's no way to hide anything from them. If you have a bedtime and that dominates your life, they'll be aware of that. If you don't have a bedtime, they'll be aware of that too. Yeah. Yeah. The, the question was, is the child a barometer for attention? The answer is yes. Yeah. Now again, we're not talking about spoiling the child. We're talking about attending to real needs. So, and you have to be able to distinguish what's a real need from what is manipulation coming from the child. And I, I can't give you a, a concrete line here. What I can tell you, though, is that Abbas and even more Imas are pre-programmed to know the line if you spend enough time with the child. If you don't spend enough time with the child, then you'll never know what the line is. But if you spend enough time with your kid, you will know what your kid needs, what is the legitimate need of the child. It, it, will, it will be clear as day to you. Right? This kid was struggling with this test and he finally passed the test. He now needs to sit with you for 20 minutes and tell you about the test six times. You'll know because you, just, you know how, what a struggle it was for him, etc., etc. Even though, like, why do you have to tell me for 20 minutes about one test? Five minutes is enough and I already gave you a hug and a, and, you know, a piece of chocolate. Right? But you know that for this kid, no, 20 minutes is necessary. And then you'll know another kid, right? So why are they talking to you for 20 minutes? Because they're bored. But not because there's an emotional need going on there. Yeah, so, so I, I tell the, 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 the ladies that I speak to who don't have kids yet, you cannot imagine how much time children require and how near impossible it is to satisfy the needs of your children. I was speaking to a woman who was planning on going to med school and in the middle of med school, she's hoping that she'll get pregnant. Yeah? And I said to her, so that means you're going to drop out of med school? And she said, no, I'll, I'll take care of my kid in med school. So obviously she has no idea what med school is. And she has for sure no idea what raising children is. Yeah? Like my wife wasn't in med school. My wife was a full-time momming and she couldn't give the kids enough attention. So, yeah, if, if it seems like it's impossible to give your kids enough attention, you're, you're probably pretty close to the, to the mark. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so the key is making fewer demands. Words, if, if, if every Friday night there's a fight, half the, half the meal about, about finishing the chicken soup, Ulai, the parents made a mistake by making such a, a demand. They should never have made such a demand. And they should be chozer. They shouldn't make that demand anymore. 
because it ruins every Friday night. Obviously, the kid's not capable of doing it because it just takes hours and hours at the at the, at the suda. Yeah. Uh, like, like this, if every single Friday night the kid fails to feed, eat the chicken soup, that's a hint that perhaps the kid is not going to be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a number of possibilities, but it would take me a long time to list them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, listen, you know, if you're worried, take the child to a pediatrician and see if the child's underweight. If the child's not underweight, right... Relax. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing to worry about. You know, thank God we're good Jewish parents. We want to force the chicken soup down the kid's throat. But, but uh, you know, if the pediatrician says the kid's within normal boundaries on the weights, then relax with the chicken soup. By the way, if you're not feeding the kid sweets and garbage, so if he's not eating the chicken soup, he's going to have to eat the carrots, right, or the salad, or a cup of milk, yeah, with Cheerios, yeah, but. There's no, there's no junk food for him to eat. So if he's not eating, like, eventually he'll get to the point where he eats something. Yeah? And, and then again, if his, if his weight drops below normal, then you have to involve a pediatrician. Yeah. But it's not like, I'm not worried, not worried about the nutrition. But you see kids who are adults, who they never learn how to eat food, they're very spoils, etc. And this kid just doesn't, doesn't um, excite his parents to have that chicken soup. It's just like, um, and he gives in now with chicken soup. Isn't one of them... So like this, uh, one of the gedolim gives a chasen shmuz, and in the chasen shmuz, he tells chosanim, who are like, you know, probably in their 20s, he tells them, when, you, when, when your wife brings you food, no matter what it tastes like, you should sit down and eat it. Yeah? Now, why does he have to tell that to adults? I mean, like, isn't that something they learned as kids? And the answer is no. It's not shayach they would have learned that as kids. Now as adults... They have to learn that when their wife puts food down in front of them, even if it's boiled rhubarb, yeah, they should say, yum, I love boiled rhubarb and eat it. Yeah? But that's something Ulai you can teach to a 20-year-old. And the, and the truth is, if I had learned the lesson, I'd be much better at teaching it to my kids. But I haven't even learned that lesson yet. I eat things that I like. So it's, it's going to be a very, very difficult thing to do this. Again, though, if the only things available are nutritious, then don't worry, because the kid will eat nutritious food. And in terms of forcing the kid to eat something he doesn't like, when he gets married, his mishkech will take care of it. Yeah. But it's, it's too much to expect of a 8, 10, 12-year-old, a 15-year-old. Yeah. As long as they're eating nutritious, forget it. He ate a bag of carrots instead of, instead of uh, the chicken soup. Okay, he ate a bag of carrots. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. What about planting the value of uh, waste? Baltashkas. Yes, a vaday. A child should not take too much more food than he's going to eat. No, what I'm saying is, you don't you want to let the kid go and not make him finish his half bowl soup. That way he doesn't throw it in the garbage. Let's give him less soup. No, give him less soup. He should, he, like this. It's, we, there is no Jewish ethic that you should finish all the food in front of you. The hefech. Yeah. The, the, the Rishonim had a diet where Yudafka didn't finish the food in front of you. You left a little piece of food on the plate. Yeah? By the way, the, this diet, it makes a sneak appearance in Shulchan Aruch, in Simon Kuf Ein, Kuf Ein Aleph. Yeah? And there it seems like we're not Nohig, because the, the Gemara there seems to be go, going Lefi Rashi. Yeah? The way that the Mechaber passes, it looks like it's going Lefi Rashi, that you, you're mashi or a little bit of food in the plate. So it sounds like the reason is there to give to the, the waiter. And since we don't have waiters today to leave for the food for, we don't have to do that. 
But there's another Tom for doing it, and that is to control taiva. That my, my goof should know that I'm not in charge of the Suda. Yeah? So, I, I went to two major post-schemes in our door and asked, what about Baltashos? Is it mutter for me to leave a little piece of food on my plate when I'm done eating? Shouldn't I just wipe out everything because they're starving people in Africa? Yeah? And, and both Gedolim said to me, one Gadol said, one postage said, uh, I can tell you, this was Rosheinberg. Rosheinberg said to me, is it Baltashchis to make uh, a doll out of a potato? Can you take a potato and turn it into a doll? So halach is, that's mutter, 100% mutter. You're allowed to use something for a productive purpose. You don't have to use the dafka for food. You can use it for any productive purpose. So Rosheinberg said to me, what could be more productive than working on your midos? Yeah, so vada, it's mutter to leave a little piece of food on the plate. It's talk a good habit for a person to get in, into the habit of leaving a little piece of food on the plate. Yeah, my kids call it the baltaiva piece. Yeah, a little piece of food left in the plate. It's a beseder, it's beseder to do. Yeah, I'm not saying you should make your kids crazy, they should do this. But if your kid leaves a little piece of food on the plate, that's beseder. They shouldn't, leave, they shouldn't take so much that they can't finish it. And certainly as parents, I shouldn't give them too much. You have to know the, the portions that your kids will eat. But there's no concept in, in, in the Torah world of baltashchis that... It's, in other words, it's not part of Baltashchis that you have to finish all the food that's put in front of you. Chas Shalom. The Rambam says, you eat till you're two-thirds full, two-thirds, three-quarters full. When you're two-thirds, three-quarters full, you stop eating. What happens if there's food on my plate? Okay, put it in the refrigerator, serve it to him next, serve it to him next week. Yeah, but after two-thirds, three-quarters full, you shouldn't eat more. Yeah. I kept you guys way after. I don't know what to do. Should I take more questions? If you have to leave, I'm not offended. You can get up and leave. Yeah. So I'm going to deal with that next week. When I, I'll deal with tantrums in great detail next week. Ask me that question next week. Yeah. Back to the, uh, <clears throat> the sleepings and starters. The bo- I mean, the bottom line is, like, even though you could, dis- you could discern what kind of sleeping, uh, what kind of, why your child's uh, screaming at night, but if, he, if, he's, if he's crying every single night for a legitimate reason, and you and your wife are not sleeping for weeks because you keep, you keep on attending to his needs, then uh, it's counterproductive to you. Right, but the thing is, you're going to do less emotional damage to yourselves than you are to the child. Like this. If, according to the kibbutz theory, right, just as emotionally you want to toughen them up, so so too you should take newborns and push them out of the crib a few times. Yeah, it makes them tough. They hit the ground two or three times. Now, of course, you push a newborn out of a crib, you can kill them. Why? Because when children are very young, they are emotionally and physically um, vulnerable. And any damage done then... Does that, does that, does that change at some point? Ah, so as they get older, they can become stronger. They can take a rougher, a rougher treating. At our age, we're much tougher emotionally and physically than the kid. So if someone's got to suffer, right? Someone's going to be emotionally strung out. It will do much less damage to claw Yisrael if you're emotionally strung out than if your kid is emotionally strung out because the kid is going to have, it's going to have lasting deep effects and supposedly we're secure, Yeah. Okay, now, if there's a serious problem and your mom is not getting enough sleep and it's, it's like Sakana, your, your wife is going to crack and, 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 and you might walk into a pole because yeah, you're so tired, you've got to get to a Rav, uh, an expert in Chinuch, and, and say over all the details of the situation so we can resolve it. Yeah? Uh, but if Stam, you're going through Tsar Gibbelbaning, so Boker Tov, I said this to the guys earlier. Yeah, when we were first coming in, I mentioned to some of the guys. Part of the chisarn in chinuch classes is 
people forget to tell you this is going to be miserable. Yeah? Now, I, it's not a tonight. If you don't have to keep saying, is it, gonna, is it miserable yet? Yeah? You don't have to like, you know, when is it, it going to get miserable? Don't worry. If it's not miserable, ashrecha. But generally, it is extremely difficult to raise kids. And it's going to cause you a lot of physical and emotional distress. By the way, it only gets worse as they get older. Yeah? So, uh, so just be prepared that it, it's really going to cost you physically and emotionally in the process. And if it costs you, it costs you. If you feel that like you're doing something wrong, there's, there's a hole that you can't take it, there's some mistake here, then, or if, even if you have a suffix, go to a Rav who knows something about Chinuch, sit down and spread the whole situation out in front of him and, and get some Eitzik. It could be there's an easy way out of the problem. But if the Rav says, listen, this is the Matzav, you just have to know that it, it's just miserable raising kids. It's difficult. Yeah? It's a great Avodah Hashem and the Schar is unbelievable. But it's very, very, it's the most difficult thing you'll do in your life. Ulai, maybe next to being a good husband. Yeah, which is perhaps more difficult than being a, a good dad. Yeah. Not with attendant behavior, right? We'll we'll speak about affection next week, God willing. But with attendance, no. Yeah. Question from uh, last week. Uh, let's say your child used to down very well, and maybe brought him to the big nest a bit too much. And now he's not interested in diving. How do you rekindle the, his experience in the next message? How old is the child? Nine years old. So the child should come later to shul. And Ulai just come for, for Musaf. Yeah, you're talking about it on Chavez. During the week, kids in school. Come for Musaf. And make sure you go to a shul where it's not too yeshivish. Because if Musaf takes a very, very long time, the kid won't be able to hold it together. Don't go to a Balbadish shul where people don't take the, the davening seriously. You, you want, a, a, you want a, a place where they go at a reasonable clip, but there's, it's, there's a seder in the, in the shul. There's no talking. You know, everyone's a good example. Yeah? That's, what, that's what you're looking for. So uh, have the kid come from Musaf. And uh, sit next to your kid and, you know, as much as you can, make it a warm experience. And, and it, it could even be that when, when, when the kid comes home from shul after having gone to Musaf, create an, an immediate uh, positive association by uh, taking the, the hot chocolate off the, off the blech. And it's the special Musaf hot chocolate. Yeah? Whenever you go to Musaf, right... Your, 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 your neshama got, you can explain to the child, now your body needs. Yeah, but you, you don't need this unless you go to Musaf. But if you go to Musaf, you're going to need a little bit of hot chocolate for the goof, because the goof is so good for coming. Yeah? Create a positive association. And sit next to the kid. Yeah? Pardon? He might, if it's only Musaf. It could be that the child's burned out. Yeah, because like, he's used to very, very long davening. And, but if it's only Musaf, he might have a fun time coming for it. Right, right. His mother or one, of the, if, or one of the older siblings has to help him get there. And, it, it, and the wake-up has to be also, like, he has to want to wake up in the morning to go to Musaf. If he, it has to be like a special privilege he should get up and go to Musaf. And if the child, momish just hates tefillah, right, at nine years old, then I, I don't know if I would push the kid to go yet. Yeah, I, I, it could be you have to wait a little bit longer, wait till he's ten. If he momish hates it. But if he's just par, and he's just like bored, then I just 
Make, make the davening a little bit shorter for him, Musaf. I don't know if I want to keep you guys here so late. Sorry, so late. Anyone wants to leave? My mom is not offended. You can please get up and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How old is the child? Oh, so if it's good for him, give him what he wants. Two and a half, he can't express it. If he throws a tantrum, tell him. As soon as you stop throwing a tantrum, I'm going to give you what you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nightmare situation. It's just a terrible situation. You know, you have to dominate such a thing doesn't happen. If it, I mean, if it happens, it's talui. If it will do damage by carrying through, you can't carry through. And that does damage in chinuch. Yeah? And if it won't do damage carrying through, but it's not a great idea, then just, you just have to carry through. I mean, like, it's just, it's a horrible situation. It's, it's a chinuch nightmare. Ulai, ulai, it depends, it depends on what the situation is. Yeah. There's no generic answer to the question, but it's, it's a nightmare. Therefore, think six times before you make a request. Yeah. Bechlal don't take her to shul. Yeah, she, like this. The gone begged his, his, his daughters and his, and his, his mother don't, not to go to shul. So, your daughter has almili smoch. <laughs> Yeah, like it's, she doesn't want to. Fantastic. Baruch Hashem. She should get into davening at home, but sneeze. It's a great thing. She and your wife can do Shimon Esrei together. Yeah, your wife and her, they'll both step up to the, to the wall together and come on, it's time we'll both daven. Let's, let's get up and daven together. And it'll be a great experience davening next to her mom. There's no Mila, at least in Eretz Yisrael, there's no Mila in taking the girls to Shul. Forget it. Yeah. It, 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 the only reason to take them would be if that is their safety cable that's, hold, that's keeping them involved in Ruchnius. But it, in Eretz Yisrael, it's a very rare thing that that's how they connect to Ruchnius. In Chutzlarz, the shul is like the center of all religious activity. But here in Eretz Yisrael, that's not the case. They should be having Ruchnius coming in six different ways. How old is a child? Forget it. Yeah? My, I'll be honest with you. My 13-year-old daughter has been to shul once in her life. That was for my son's bar mitzvah. And, and I hope that she doesn't ever go to shul. I hope she never goes to shul. Because in shul, people speak Lashon Hara and they look at her dress and they become jealous of her. And, blah, blah, blah. and a, a, a girl's place is Bitsnias at home, cold food, basmelech pnima. And she should, she, should, she should be at home, dab with her mother. And my, my, my daughter Davin's unbelievable tefillah, standing next to my wife. Yeah, and, and she loves tefillah, but like, what is she doing in shul? It's like a strange place for her to be. If your, your daughter loves going to shul, I would not tell you to, that you have to enforce the going and stop her. But your daughter doesn't like to go? Forget it. Let her daven, let her, let her daven at home. Yeah. What's a healthy and practical approach to junk food? Especially the children are young. They get it in gun. How do you... What, I say practical as well because I know some who have in... That it's also in the house, not even on Shabbos and Smart Rock. They go nuts. Yeah. Okay, I don't, want to, I don't want to take too much time to deal with it only because I deal with it in the book. But I'll just add something that I don't say in the book, and that is this. Uh, certain types of junk food are very powerful chinuch tools. So for instance, 
uh, hot apple pie on Friday night transforms the student to a ruchni experience for a kid. Yeah? Uh, my my nine-year-old made a siyam in his first mesecht of Shas. And we went to Berman and we got a thick chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. Yeah? Nothing less. Yeah? And I even ate a piece. Yeah? Because um, that's, that's choshuv, yeah? It's a very powerful chinuch tool. On the other hand, there are some kids, and I'm choosing my language very carefully because I've been misquoted so often, there are some children who are sensitive to sugar, and there are some children who are sensitive to low molecular weight compounds. And if a child is sensitive to these foods and they eat them, it makes them crazy. Kids who are diabetics know that that food is poison and they won't touch it because it'll, it'll, it'll hurt them. Children who are allergic to sugar or to these no, low molecular weight compounds, they have to know that for them that's poison. And then if it's given to them at all, it has to be given to them with, with, with great restrictions. You, on the other hand, you have to be aware that if a child doesn't get any junk food, they're going to go to a neighbor's house and they're going to chow down. Which means you have to provide children with yummy snacks, chewy things, salty things, sweet things. And there, there is no shortage of these cookbooks that tell how to make healthy, yummy snacks that taste delicious. If your child hasn't had chocolate for two, three months, they'll forget what chocolate tastes like and they'll eat carob. Yeah? But... It'll take two, three months before they forget. But after a while, 